This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and pioneer in integrative health Deepak Chopra examines how our understanding of consciousness can enhance our capacity for intuition, creativity, and conscious choice-making. The talk was recorded on September 28, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you, Brita and... um Joe, if he's here, thank you. I'm very honored to be here this evening with all of you and also very honored to have been the recipient of the CIAS Award in 2003. So before I I start, uh, I'm going to just tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak for about an hour and I'll talk about, um, I think, everything. Uh, and so at the moment of conception, you have um, about 20 million genes, half from your father, the other half from your mother. A gene is a stretch of DNA that codes for a unit of heredity or a protein. And uh, of course, enzymes are proteins too, so uh, as the gene expresses itself, it basically builds the body, 20,000 genes. 65% of your genes are the same as a banana, 80% are the same as a mouse, uh, about almost 99% are the same as a chimpanzee. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. And there are four chemical bases that compose DNA. And they're called adenine, cytosine, thymine, guanine. You don't have to remember that, except to know that four letters, A, T, C, and G, make all of life. All of life is four letters. doesn't matter if that life is that of a rose petal or a caterpillar or a mosquito or a banana or a strawberry or a human being, just four letters. In English, we have to use 26 letters just to speak or write to each other. But life has only four letters. So now, an interesting thing to know also is that the actual elements, the atoms that make those four letters are carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and a few others, but mostly those four. And where did they come from? They came from burning stars, supernova. And they could have come from different galaxies. So the carbon in your fingernails, the oxygen going to your uh, brain may have come from different galaxies, from the Milky Way or Andromeda or Virgo. There are hundreds of billions of galaxies. And why I'm saying this is it takes the whole universe 
to manufacture a human being. 13.8 billion years of cosmic time. So please don't waste your life. It took you 13.8 billion years to get here in this present form. Uh, during those nine months um, of gestation, the genes rem remember all of evolution. So you first look like um, a reptile. In fact, you have a reptilian brain. So if, you, you know, if I hold my hand up like this, this part with the fleshy part of my thumb is, that's called the reptilian brain. So when I was in medical school, the way we remembered the functions of the reptilian brain were the four Fs, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproduction. Okay. So because, because of that, we are here. When somebody is brain dead and uh, they're still kept going on a machine, that's the reptilian brain. It's like the tenant has left the house, but the fixtures are still working, or they are made to work, which is quite a ridiculous thing to do anyway, but it makes money for the hospitals and the manufacturers of all these equipments. Okay, so that's the first part of your brain that develops very early, reptilian brain. If I open my hand up like this, where you see my thumb, that's called the limbic brain or the emotional brain. It's also called the mammalian brain because mammals are so-called because of the word mammary, which means breast. So mammals uh, don't lay eggs. They make babies. And they breastfeed. And they form emotional bonds with their young and amongst each other, you know, so... Um, reptiles apparently don't have an emotional life, although they instinctively protect their offspring. But only mammals have intense emotions. They bond with emotions like love and compassion and joy and playfulness and touching and cooing and cuddling and kissing and licking, all of that is only happens in mammals, and that actually cultivates the limbic brain shortly after birth, and uh, most of that happens in the first three years of life, and then you continue to grow emotionally unless you're running for president. <laughs> okay. So that, that's the limbic brain. And then we have a cortical brain, which is the bulk. So the reptilian brain is about 300 million years old. The cortical, um, sorry, the limbic emotional brain is 100 million years old in evolutionary, evolutionary terms. And the cortical brain is only 4 million years old. Human beings have existed on this planet for about less than 200,000 years. But the cortical brain grew explosively when we started to um, use words to communicate with each other. So oral language is about 15,000 years, and written language is, believe it or not, only 5,000 years. And that's when the brain grew, the cortical brain. Because of that, we have so-called civilization. I say so-called because um, 
You know, we also have atom bombs and nuclear weapons and mechanized death and eco-destruction and climate change and extinction of species and poison in our food chain. I could go on and on, but I won't. This is creativity um, of the cortical brain, which um, is not fully integrated with the emotional brain or the reptilian brain, which should only be used for emergencies. So when you have this disintegration, then you have the chaos that we see in the world, including war and terrorism and everything else I've mentioned. But when there's integration, then of course, there's art and music and architecture and technology that can help us. Today we have the technology already the technology exists to create energy without uh, pollution. The technology exists, believe it or not, to reverse climate change through the right type of farming. The technology exists to resurrect uh, species that have gone into extinction. So Jurassic Park technology already exists, and so on. But now this is a time where the world could go either way. This way, where we could risk our own extinction. After 65 million years, when the last extinction happened, now if there's an extinction, it'll be human beings. But we don't think that's going to happen because we are all here uh, consciously now seeking our own evolution through the evolution of consciousness. And ultimately, through the evolution of the consciousness of consciousness. Dr. Jonas Salk, a great biologist, said um, the next phase of human evolution is what he called metabiological evolution, the evolution of consciousness, and then higher states of consciousness, what wisdom traditions have called transcendental consciousness, cosmic consciousness, divine consciousness, unity consciousness, and also access to things like intuition, spontaneous creativity, um, self-awareness, uh, imagination, um, integrated with uh, healthy emotions like love, compassion, and joy. So it's a great time, but it's also a time of crisis. And these things happen together. When there's creativity, there's also the unleashing of chaos. So, as I said before, I'll, I'll probably speak for an hour, and then I'll do a short meditation to give you an experience as well. So, this book, Supergenes, which preceded Radical Wellbeing, it's an interesting kind of transition from Supergenes to Radical uh, Beauty, because beauty is an expression also of nature, truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, and higher consciousness. The great Indian poet Tagore said, when I feel beauty, I know it as truth. So beauty is an inner feeling that of course then is reflected uh, as a projection in your body and in your relationships as well. But this book, the previous book came about because I happened to find myself um, in, um, next to Rudy Tanzi, who's a neurogeneticist at Harvard, and I was in the next urinal to him in the men's room after a TED Med conference. And, you know, he'd given a brilliant talk. He's, 
He's actually created a brain, a human brain, in a, in a test tube. He's discovered 40, 50 genes. And I always think, you know, if I'm sitting, standing next to him in a urinal, it must be a, a meaningful coincidence, a synchronicity. And I'm not going to waste this opportunity. So uh, without turning my body, I looked at him and I, I said... Uh, Rudy, are genes verbs or nouns? And I could see him thinking. And he said, uh, why don't we go outside and then we can talk. <laughs> so we went outside and we started a conversation by email and we've become best friends. And he's just an amazing guy willing to stretch his mind. So what is this combination, genes, epigenome, and microbiome. As you come out of the birth canal, and even if you're a cesarean section, shortly after birth, when mother picks you up and breastfeeds you and touches you, and during the passage through the vagina, the baby inhales and breathes and is covered by the vaginal secretions of its mother. And this inoculates the baby with a second genome that we call the microbiome. Okay, so the microbiome contributes 2.2 million genes uh, to your body. So you have 20,000 human genes, and then you have 2.2 million bacterial genes. Technically speaking, you're a, a bacterial colony with a few human cells hanging on. And these bacteria are the ecosystem of our planet. They're in plants, in dirt, in soil, and uh, also uh, they cover our skin, our lungs. They're crucial to our survival. In fact, they contribute more than our human genes. Okay. And then what is the epigenome? The epigenome is a sheath of proteins that gets created shortly after you are born as a result of experiences. Experiences like eating, breathing, digestion, metabolism, elimination, sensory experience, sound, touch, sight, taste, smell, music, um, love, and thought. So emotions, uh, thoughts, uh, imagination, storytelling, babies are told stories, and uh, music, they all shape this sheath of proteins that then interacts with the genome and the microbiome to bring about healthy development or what we call homeostasis, self-regulation. The whole process is self-organized. Of course, we, in a few moments, we'll ask ourselves, what do we mean by self-organized? What is, what is the self that is organizing the whole process? Okay, so this is how the story began, and now this is how the story is uh, extending, because um, when I met Kimberly, who's my co-author of this book, she's an amazing nutritionist and very, very uh, astute knowledge of Ayurveda, which is what I've spent all my life talking about after I trained as a neuroendocrinologist, and she brought um, her knowledge, and we collaborated on this book, which is a transformation from inside, um, reflecting in the outside. 
Okay, so this is what your body is. It's an activity. It's not a thing. In fact, that's why we say it's a verb. Your genes are verbs. Your brain is a verb. Your body is a verb. It's an activity, not a thing. A verb, not a noun. In fact, there are no nouns in the universe. Nouns are conventions of language, but they don't exist. Even this microphone is made of atoms. The atoms are particles. The particles are moving at lightning speeds around huge empty spaces. So even this is an activity. But your body is much more of an activity than anything else that you can think of. So with every breath that you breathe in, you're breathing in 10 to the power of 22 atoms from the physical environment. With every breath that you breathe out, you're breathing out 10 to the power of 22 atoms that have their origin, they're coming from every cell in your body. So at the atomic level, you're literally breathing out bits and pieces of your heart and kidney and brain tissue. And technically speaking, we're all intimately sharing our organs with each other right this moment. It's possible to do radioactive isotope studies and prove without a shadow of doubt that right this moment you have a million atoms that were once in the body of Moses or Buddha or Michelangelo or Saddam Hussein or anyone else you want to think about. In just the last three weeks, a quadrillion atoms have gone through your body. Quadrillion means 10 followed by 15 zeros that have gone through the body of every other living species on this planet. So think of a tree in Africa, a peasant in China, a taxi driver in Calcutta, and you have stuff in your body that was circulating there three weeks ago. In one, <clears throat> in one year, you replace about 98% of all the atoms in your body. So at the atomic level, you recycle your stomach lining every five days your skin once a month, your skeleton every three months, and your DNA, which I just told you, remembers the evolution of 2.8 billion years of life on our planet. The actual stuff, the carbon, the hydrogen, the oxygen, it comes and goes every six weeks like migratory birds. So this is my year 2016 model. And <laughs> the last time I came... Uh, to San Francisco, I brought the same suitcase, but not the same body. Because my suitcase has a longer shelf life than my body. The point of all this is to see very clearly that you could not be your body. You see? We use the word I all the time. I am Deepak. I am Deepak Chopra. But Deepak Chopra had a different body two years ago different body as a teenager, different body as a toddler, and different body as a baby. So the body is constant. It's like Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher. <clears throat> he said, no man can step into the same river twice because it's a new man and it's a new river. So your body is like a flowing river which is never the same. Not in one moment, it's not the same. Okay, just like the river, it looks the same, but it's never the same. And after, as years go by, it doesn't look the same either. Okay, 
So this is a very important point for many reasons, to understand who we are, what the self is, which we'll address. But this is what's happening every day in your body. And by understanding this, we can actually now see what's the best way to bring about health and beauty. The worst way is through this modern epidemic that we call stress. So how do we define stress? Stress is the perception of physical or psychological threat. Stress is not in the world, it's not in the environment, it's not in you. It's how you interact with the environment. Just like if you're a skillful surfer, then every wave is exhilaration. If you're not prepared, then every wave is disaster. So stress is not something we can say, you know, it's because I, I live in San Francisco or New York and my boss is such an idiot. That's not um, the reason you're stressed. The reason is you don't know how to interact with what's happening around you. <clears throat> and it has become the most important epidemic of our civilization. So everything from war to terrorism to bad health in the individual can ultimately be linked to stress. Okay, and it starts with these simple things like lack of concentration and inability to focus and a little bit of depression and anxiety, but it keeps getting worse till it results in behavior problems and um, ultimately it results in disease. So there's not a single disease that is not linked to uh, stress. We now know that, and of course, indirectly through addictive behavior and other things, stress is linked to every disease. It starts with all these things, whether it's skin eruptions or musculoskeletal problems or GI disturbances or heart disease or autoimmune illnesses, many types of cancer, um, endocrine metabolic disorders, are all linked to stress. I'll show you in a few moments that only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. So a mutation is like an error in a gene. It's like a, if the DNA is the letter and the genes are the words and the punctuation is something called intergenic DNA, only 2% or less of your DNA is actually genes. The other is punctuation. It's, it's your life is a story that unfolds um, over time, and the punctuation is the remaining DNA, 98% of it. Okay, so once in a while, just like you're writing a story or a manuscript, there are typos and errors, and those typos and errors are called mutations. They're, think of them as spelling mistakes. And uh, only 5% of those are fully penetrant, which means that at the moment, we don't know how to stop them. But that's good news. That means 95% of even gene mutations that are disease-related, you can override them by how you live your life. And I'll show you that in a moment, okay? So given this, what's the antidote? And what we did was, um, these are the six pillars uh, that you'll find in the book, Radical Beauty, these six pillars of well-being. Sleep, meditation, and stress management. Movement, both regular movement, 10,000 steps a day, 
and also integrated mind-body coordination through yoga and breathing techniques, pranayam, emotions, healthy emotions, which are in Eastern wisdom traditions called divine emotions. Um, love, compassion, empathy, joy, playfulness, and uh, spontaneous creativity that emerges from them, and equanimity or peace of mind. And then nutrition, basically, of course, Kimberly has gone into great details in the book you're holding, because she's, you know, she's a nutritionist. But if you remember that healthy nutrition means uh, nothing that is manufactured, refined, contaminated by growth hormone or antibiotics or other hormones or insecticides and pesticides, which are petroleum products. And in my opinion, and Kimberly's opinion, anything that's GMO'd as well, because if it's genetically modified, it must not be recognized by your microbiome, which has existed on our planet for all these thousands of years. And so we have created this artificial food that we call food that comes from factories, and that certainly is very destructive to our body. So finally grounding, how many people have ever felt better when they walk barefoot on the ground? Anybody? Okay, on the grass, on the beach, etc. That's because we are part of the earth and we are part of the biosphere, this whole life on our planet. And when you walk barefoot on the ground or on the grass or on the beach, what happens is negative ions come into your body and they neutralize the excess free radicals that build up um, uh, over a period of time. So that's why grounding or earthing, as it's called, along with restoration of biological rhythms, is very much an important part of these six pillars. At our center right now, and I'm going to show you some research, we're doing some research on grounding because our massage therapists are, are always on their feet for the whole day. So what we have is they, they work with bare feet and they walk on a mat and the mat has an outlet that links them to the earth. And that's called grounding or earthing. And in fact, if you have these mats which are available uh, now on the internet, you could be on the 20th floor and you could still be grounded. And so, or your pillow could be grounded or your bed sheet could be grounded. Uh, all it means is there's an outlet that's taking um, or making, <clears throat> making contact with the earth. Okay, so this is all I had to say tonight. And if you're in a hurry, you can leave now. And good night and thanks for coming. Okay, so now let's go into a few details. Not many people know that sleep is the best opportunity you have to actually be healthy. And in the wisdom tradition of Vedanta, sleep is non-local awareness. First, dream sleep, which is your subtle body experience. You know, mind, intellect, ego, those are subtle bodies. And then in deep sleep, you actually go to the level of your being, or sleep actually is contact with your soul. In higher states of consciousness, we wake up to that experience. And that's why... During sleep, all these wonderful things happen. Elimination of toxins, renewal and repair, immune function is fine-tuned, 
memory is consolidated. This is a very important thing about memory. You know, when I first met Rudy, I said, Rudy, where at the level of cells is memory in the brain? What is the cellular basis of memory? And he said, I don't know. I said, can you ask other neuroscientists when you meet them? And his next neuroscience conference, he asked every neuroscientist, where is memory in the brain at the level of cells? And the answer is, no one knows. They assume that it's in the brain. But in the Vedic tradition, memories are in your soll. And uh, they basically exist as uh, possibilities till you recall the memory. So if I asked you, what did you have for lunch today? Salad. So you think if I go in the brain, I'll find some neuron that says salad? There's no such thing. Okay, that memory didn't exist till I asked her what she had for lunch. It existed as a possibility in her consciousness, which is another word of saying in her soul right now. So when I asked the question, then some neural firing occurred. But before that, there was no memory. So when people say, where do we go after we die? It's where that salad was before I asked the question. Okay, I'm, I'm not being facetious, okay? That's called a sanskara. Sanskara is the seed of a memory based on karma and previous experiences. Do you remember the house that you lived in as a teenager? Can you see it now in your mind's eye? Okay, you can see your bedroom. So where was that before I asked the question? And, and, and it's, she says she can see it. There's no picture of the house in her brain either. All that's happening in her brain is neural firings. They're called neural correlates of consciousness. But where's that picture, the JPEG of the house? <laughs> that's the big mystery that science is struggling with, amongst other things. Um, it's called the hard problem of consciousness, which means no one can physically explain consciousness, either physical experience, perceptual experience, like this experience you're having right now, science is unable to explain that. You know, they assume it's happening here, but you know, this room doesn't fit into your brain, right? Or the experience of your own body, where's that happening? The experience of mental images, thoughts, sensations, science calls that the hard problem of consciousness, which means we cannot find the physical basis of any experience, either perceptual, which means sound, touch, sight, taste, smell, or mental, emotions, thoughts. Nobody can answer that question. So this question has existed for thousands of years. It's called the mind-brain problem, the mind-body problem, the heart problem. But um, great seers had figured it out. They said, the reason you can't answer the question is that you're asking the wrong question. You're asking, how does physical matter create consciousness when it's the other way around? Consciousness um, conceives, governs, constructs, and becomes the experience of the physical world. In fact, there's no physical world. It's just an experience happening in consciousness. Um, through the collection of qualia or qualities of consciousness. So that's a whole another topic, but if you meditate, if you learn to witness your body, if you learn to witness your thoughts, 
if you learn to witness your emotions, uh, Krishnamurti, the great Indian teacher, said the highest intelligence is the ability to observe yourself without judging yourself. And as you start to do that, you realize that it is your consciousness that is interacting with its own self and becoming the experience of mind, of emotions, of body, and in fact, the physical universe. The universe exists in you. In you meaning in your awareness, right? Your body exists in your awareness, your mind. And all that you experience is an intermittent stream of sensations, images, feelings, thoughts. And you collect them and you say, oh, that's my mind, that's my body, that's the universe. Sleep enhances the experience of meditation because in deep sleep you go into non-local being. Okay, so that is our first pillar. The second pillar is uh, meditation. So a few years ago, when Elizabeth Blackburn was here in San Francisco, she's now in my town, La Jolla. She's the head of the Salk Institute of Biology and had the privilege of having her over for dinner a few months ago. Uh, Elizabeth used to be here in San Francisco at UC uh, University of California, San Francisco Medical School. And, uh, you, know, you know, Mark Benioff is also from this area, and he supports a lot of the research. I had him introduce her to me because she's a Nobel laureate. She won the Nobel Prize for discovering an enzyme called telomerase. So through Mark's uh, graciousness, I went and met her, and once she signed on, then everybody signed on. Rudy signed on, Eric Schott from Mount Sinai signed on. And what we did is have the scientists come to the center, and this research was supported by the Chopra Foundation. One of our board members is here, Jennifer Morgan. And um, what we did was, the first thing we did was, in a one-week retreat of meditation, um, over one week, this course is called Seduction of Spirit, where people learn the kind of meditation I'm going to teach you. It's a little different, but basically those same principles. And in one week, uh, what we found was there was a 40% increase in the enzyme called telomerase. Telomerase is the enzyme that controls the length of your genes or chromosomes. And as we grow older, then the genes get shorter, the, the telomere gets shorter, the levels of telomerase fall, but in this case, they increase by 40% in one week, which means in one week of meditation, people were actually reversing their biological age at a genetic level. You know, today you've heard, I'm sure, that today's 80 is less than 60, could be less than 60, today's 60 could be less than 40, and so on. Can you keep reversing your age till you disappear into an orgasm? I mean, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? But we certainly know that it's possible to reverse biological aging. Okay, so at this point we got very excited, and these papers have now come out in the last two months. When people go on a retreat, even without the meditation, their genes change when they go on a retreat and they're just in nature or by themselves 
or you know, not the usual kind of vacation where people um, get more stressed, but um, a meditation retreat. And so this paper came out in Nature Translational Psychology, Psychiatry, um, last month and created headlines in the world because what it showed was a very specific signature of uh, meditation. Uh, and this is the paper that you're seeing over there, published in one of the most high-impact journals in the world, Nature Translational <coughs> Psychiatry. And by doing this, what we're looking at is now mapping molecular states to how the biology feels. As I showed you earlier, our genes are not things, they're activities. And they speak to each other. And this is a slide from Eric Schott at Mount Sinai. And uh, basically he says, we can now predict models to navigate between disease and health states. And this is what we found in our research at the center over one week. People were moving from an unhealthy state. And once you know where to target a network, then you can see what kind of intervention that um, would need. So this is, again, this is the study that just came out. And uh, what we see is all the genes that are responsible for self-regulation, they go up. Some 17-fold over baseline. And all the genes that are responsible or play a part in susceptibility to heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and many other kinds of illnesses, autoimmune illnesses, they go down. In fact, Eric said, and in this paper he says, um, because he's one of the co-authors of the paper, is that we can now look at a blood sample and do a gene analysis and predict with 98% accuracy if you are a regular meditator or not. Okay, so this is all too many details here that you don't need to bother with. Um, but now we are taking this and we're extending it at our center uh, to something called biofield science. So these are two papers. I'm one of the authors in these papers that are done, one with physicists and the other with biologists that are looking at the biofield of the human body. And we first looked at EEG and heart rate variability and all of that. But uh, that's what a cardiologist does when you go to see a cardiologist. But these days you can get sensors that are about this big, the size of a Band-Aid. You can put them in your oh, here and here. Your iPhone or Android can pick them up, uh, transfer them to a supercomputer, and get an instant readout. And then you can correlate, correlate that with what's happening epigenetically. So those blue balls that you see, those are the epigenes or proteins, and the DNA is wrapped around that. So with every experience that we have, including meditation, there's a change in the configuration of the epigenes. There are chemical reactions called methylation, deacetylation, etc., that modify the activity of the genes. So these studies have already been published in the frontiers of human, in human neuroscience, along with Eric Topol, and his collaborators at uh, Scripps. And these studies um, are showing that your state of consciousness actually changes your biofield. Now, here's a very interesting study that's not by us, by somebody else. And this is in a, what is called 
a transgene expression by a wireless-powered optogenic designer cell implant. So what they did was they took mouse DNA, they put it in a test tube, and then they had people meditate around the mouse DNA, and then they wirelessly transmitted the brain waves to the mouse DNA, and even the DNA in the mouse changed. Which means our consciousness is not in our brain. It's transpersonal and even transspecies. It transcends species. We are part of the sentience of all existence. When I saw this study, I said to myself, you know, I bet you that Obama's dog doesn't think Obama is the president of the country. (laughs) You know, or he's such a powerful guy, or he's sitting in the Oval Office. Those are human concepts. You know, we are part of life, and life is consciousness. And... um, we connect with all life at a deep level. And here's the scientific proof. Now, the human biofield extends about eight feet. And so right now, all of you are emanating a biofield that's about eight feet from where you are. And our biofields are interfering with each other and creating interference patterns. So we are regulating each other's biology through our state of consciousness. We are being regulated by each other and we're all inseparably dependent on each other. And there's the science to prove it. So if you're all in a happy mood right now, um, somebody driving outside might suddenly start to feel happy and they don't even know why. (laughs) Right? And of course, with technology that gets accelerated, you can send somebody a kiss or an emoticon in South Africa and give them a dopamine hit right now. We are not, there's no such thing as a thing, number one. It's all activity. It's the activity of the universe. And it's the activity of the universe in consciousness. And this is a really exciting time. That's why CIIS is so important. What is happening at Sophia University nearby is so important. What we're doing at the Chopra Center with all these collaborators is so important. So now, um, Jeffrey Martin is here in the audience. He's studying higher states of consciousness, transcendence, peak experiences, the state of flow, non-local awareness, intuition, creativity, archetypal awareness, and what we can call sacred experiences. And uh, we're developing a course based on these experiences and also looking at their biological correlates. Very exciting time. So as a result of all this, we got so excited, we said, let's extend the studies on meditation to what we call SBTI. SBTI is an acronym. It stands for Self-Directed Biological Transformation Initiative. And now, because we had the meditation study, we had other people collaborate with us. So you see the list of people has extended. We have Duke University and Sanford Burnham. And today science is becoming a collaborative effort. In fact, the epigenetic roadmap is going to involve billions of dollars and institutions all over the world because science is now a collaborative effort. And also you need um, uh, not only collaborations because the amount of data is so so much and so difficult to analyze, 
you need the help of supercomputers. So what we, we are now have finished this study, and this study involves a one-week program of Panchakarma, which is an Ayurvedic uh, treatment where there's a little bit of detox, taking herbs, going on a plant-based diet for that week anyway, and then yoga and breathing techniques and conscious communication, healthy food, and a few more things. But basically, those are the essentials. And this is the data we are collecting. Uh, so, you know, different universities are doing different things. Harvard, Mount Sinai, Scripps. Believe me, we are collecting trillions of bits of data. So if each byte of data was the size of a penny, it would take three shiploads just to contain the data. So extensive, this research. It's never been done before. And we have about 15 papers in the pipeline that are looking at everything from microbiome to gut uh, health to uh, metabolites to the two-way circulation between the brain and the gut and the gut and the brain through the vagus nerve. And we are beginning to find some studies. And here's a study on gratitude, which... Uh, we had people keep a journal which said, I am grateful for, at the end of the day, and their biological markers changed. This, published, this was just published from our center at uh, Columbia University, has a journal on this um, kind of mind-body stuff, and uh, even your brain changes when you experience gratitude. So this paper was published in Nature Scientific Reports this month. And um, it also created headlines. This is uh, one week that we call Perfect Health, which is basically Panchakarma, and it shows the uh, shift in uh, what do you call uh, metabolites in your body that move in a direction that causes, uh, that is indicative of less inflammation in the body. And you know that inflammation is directly or indirectly linked to so many diseases, including autoimmune illnesses and many types of cancer as well. And these are some of the studies that are currently uh, being undertaken, including a whole campus, GMU, that is learning meditation online. Okay, so um, these are the other things that I've mentioned, movement, yoga, pranayam, and... Um, um, and mind-body coordination. So I'm not going to go into details other than to say that how many people in this room practice yoga? Wow. This is California. <laughs> so you know, when you do different postures, the postures in Sanskrit, they are called asana. And asana means seat of awareness. So each of those asanas have a different effect on different nerves in the body. Cat-cow, or sun salutation, or happy baby. All these have different nerves get activated. And these nerves go to the different organs of your body, and they begin self-regulation. So a few months ago, I was in Aspen, where they have this conference, Aspen um, Ideas. And I got a call from... I'm not going to name the drug company, but the chief of the, uh, the R&D uh, department of this 
mega, mega pharmaceutical company. And he said that they were doing something called bioelectrical medicine. And what they had found was that um, in some patients with uh, intractable epilepsy, they had put a little, um, little electrical implant in the vagus nerve because if somebody has intractable epilepsy, if you stimulate the vagus nerve, it has bidirectional traffic and it can help the epilepsy. And it's approved by the FDA for that um, disease, difficult epilepsy. What they found to their surprise was that some patients who had other diseases, in addition to epilepsy, they had bronchial asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, or inflammatory bowel, they started to get better. So he was consulting me to see if we had any knowledge of which nerves go to which part of the body. I said, this is simple. We do this every day. When we do yoga, we regulate all the organs of the body. He said, I know that, but how do you make money out of that? <laughs> I said, I'll think about it. Um, but the point is that now there are published papers on how yoga causes self-regulation in different parts of your body. And this is going to be a big, big future um, that we are also looking at. And then emotions, which regulate through, through um, opiates, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. So these are um, molecules of emotion, which also fine-tune your immune system. You don't want an aggressive immune system because that would give you inflammation and autoimmune illnesses. You don't want a depressed immune system because that would result in infection and propensity for cancer. The immune system has to be finely tuned. And it happens through love and other emotions that connect us to each other. I mentioned nutrition. So think six tastes of life, as in Ayurveda, sweets are salt, bitter, pungent, astringent, but sweet not as in sugar. Refined sugar is inflammatory and kills the microbiome. But, and then the seven colors of the rainbow, and we are looking at the effects of herbs as well, especially Ayurvedic herbs that have an effect on gene expression. These are some of the most powerful natural medicines that actually work. Okay, and uh, as I said, you'll find a lot of this information in uh, the book Radical Wellbeing and also on earthing. So those are the slides of the limbs inflamed and then what happens after a little bit of grounding, which brings about homeostasis. So now grounding has been shown to be effective in all these things from menstrual cramps to recovery from injury to jet lag and on and on. It's wonderful. It's proof that we're connected to our planet, to the biosphere. There are four rhythms that we have in our body. As the earth spins on its own axis, that's called the circadian rhythm. So if you have jet lag, that's a disruption of circadian rhythm. As the earth goes around the sun, then you have a seasonal rhythm. And as the earth, the sun, and the moon move in relationship to each other, you have a lunar rhythm. And particularly in women, the lunar rhythm is very important. And again, Kimberly talks about this in, in the chapter on what she calls uh, primal beauty. 
And then as the, you see the gravitational effects of the sun and the moon on the earth, they cause tidal rhythms. So even the phases of the moon affect uh, our body fluids. Until recently, the Western model of medicine had never looked at this. But we have known about it in Ayurveda. And now, thankfully, we have um, ways to validate it through science. So basically, we have a healing system, and it's guided by consciousness. And this is a slide prepared with, uh, with Blake Gurfin, who's a neuro, neuroscientist right here in San Francisco, by the way. And he's uh, collaborating with us, and uh, he's absolutely brilliant. And he created this slide that I'm showing right now, uh, Blake Gurfin. And basically, your mind-body therapies affect the brain, and then these are all the metabolic pathways, including the immune system. So this slide was prepared by him for a paper that is soon to be published. Okay, so in conclusion, you can reinvent your body because your body is a process, not a structure. Your body is an energy and information field. Your genes are influenced by thoughts, emotions, relationships, social interactions, and environment, what we call epigenetics. You can change the structure of your brain and the activity of your genes by um, integrating the three brains that um, you have. Your brain was created by your genes, but it's molded by experience. Only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. You can change your relationship with time. See, this is a very mysterious thing. We all experience time. But in fact, there is only the present moment, right? When you think of the future, you think of it in the present moment. When you think of the past, you think of it in the present moment. And in the present moment, what is happening is experiences arising and then subsiding. The experience that you had when we started the lecture is gone, right? The experience at the end of my sentence is different than the experience before I started to speak that sentence. So you can't hold on to any experience. There's only the present moment, and in that present moment, experience arises, and before you can catch it, it's gone. It's in the past. And then the others you're thinking about tomorrow. In other words, our life is a dream. Ludwig Wittgenstein, the German philosopher, he said, our life is a dream. We are asleep. But once in a while, we wake up just enough to know that we are dreaming. What happened today, this morning, lunch, salad, it's gone, <laughs> right? What happened before the lecture started, it's over. So, there is no such thing as experience in the present moment. The whole thing is a dream. What is not the dream is the awareness in which experience happens. 
So let me ask you right now to try something. As you're listening to me, turn your attention to who's listening right now. And what you experience is presence. The presence is your soul. It's not your mind, which might be saying, I wish I'd gone to the bathroom before the lecture, (laughs) or some other trivial thing. Why didn't my girlfriend return my call? What did she think she is? Okay. So, awareness is not a thought. Awareness is that from which a thought comes and into which a thought subsides. Awareness cannot be perception because perception also arises and subsides. It's not our body. Body is just an intermittent stream of sensations, images, feelings, thoughts that are constantly arising and then subsiding in awareness. In fact, there is only awareness and its excitations that we call mind, body, and universe. Because as human beings, we have created words for every experience. Literally. There's no experience that we don't have a word for. So we've created a universe. We've created the idea that there's a body, that there's a mind. In fact, there isn't. There's awareness and its excitations. And that's who we are. We are awareness. So, turn your attention back to being. In this presence, a whole lifetime appears as a dream. Childhood, old age. But the presence itself is not in time. Everything else is in time. That's why in the Bhagavad Gita, they say water cannot wet it, wind cannot dry it, weapons cannot shatter it, fire cannot burn it. It's ancient, it's unborn, and it does not know death. What dies is an experience. And it dies as soon as it is born. So birth and death are not opposites. Okay? They're part of a continuum of life. Life is the continuum of birth and death that happens in every moment. And what is being born and what is dying is experience. What you call physical death is just incubating in the place where that salad is. Literally, all our memories are there, all the karma, all the desires, the software of the soul that uh, recycles, just like everything else recycles. Matter recycles, energy recycles, information recycles, like a spiral. It is called recursiveness and evolution at the same time. So, you know, Rumi says, once I was um, present as awareness in rocks and minerals. Then I started to dream in plants. I started to wake up as an animal. And as a human, I asked myself, 
who am I? What's going on? So this is the journey of our evolution in cosmic time. Again, Rumi also says, when I die, I will soar with angels. When I die to the angels, what I shall become, you cannot imagine. Because even imagination is a never-ending horizon in consciousness. And wherever the imagination goes, we follow. Imagination is not your own property, nor is creativity, nor is intuition. It belongs to the awareness of which we are a part as Rumi, again, and he's such a great poet, he said, you're not just a drop in the ocean, you're also the mighty ocean in the drop. Okay, so if that is not hopelessly abstract, right? (laughs) Clear, right? Is it clear? I hope so. So uh, we'll forget this for now. And what we'll talk about is a little bit about spiritual well-being, okay? So, humans suffer. Do animals suffer? Yes, if you mistreat them. But humans have another kind of suffering. It's called existential suffering. If you kick a dog, the dog also will remember, five years later, if you meet that dog, he or she may attack you. But unlike a human being, that dog won't plan for five years how to get even. Okay? But we do that, right? How do I get even? Okay. He did it to me when I was 10 years old. Or she did it to me. So, again, this problem has been addressed ever since the time of Job in the Old Testament and right through Vedanta. And this is, comes from Vedanta. It says, suffering occurs because we do not know the true nature of reality, because we are craving and clinging and addicted to a movement, and you can't do that. You can't hang on to a thing that doesn't exist as a thing. Because we are afraid of uh, impermanence, because we identify with a false, constricted, habitual self, a socially induced hallucination called the ego, and because we fear death. So these are called kleshas, the causes of suffering. And the Vedanta says... Um, the truth is contained in the first klesha, not knowing the true nature of reality. You're not the same person today when you were a baby, but you're the same being, right? When we say, I am, it's not this same body, not this frozen, you know, intellect or, or mind or emotions. It's the being in which that experience is happening. So, the great wisdom tradition says, hold on to your true self, and that will be your ticket to freedom. Everything else is flowing. So, if that seems like a reasonable conclusion, then let's do our meditation now. Are you game for that? Okay. So, put your feet on the ground... Put your hands on your lap, keep them comfortable, close your eyes, sit relatively erect, and let's start with just observing the breath. And as you observe the breath, 
Notice how spontaneous it is that you don't actually have to breathe, you're being breathed by the biosphere. Nor can you hold on to your breath. If you do, you will suffocate. And this should be a reminder that you cannot hold on to any experience. Because like the breath, experience arises and subsides. And now bring your awareness into the area of your heart and mentally ask the question, who am I? Who am I? Not looking for any answers, just asking and receiving. Who am I? And now ask the question, what do I want? What do I want? Allowing any sensation, image, feeling or thought to spontaneously come to you. What do I want? And now ask the question, what is my purpose? How do I serve? Allowing any sensation, image, feeling or thought to come to you. And then the final question, what am I grateful for? Opening the door to our soul. What am I grateful for? Allowing any sensation, image, feeling or thought to come to you. Now let go of the questions and mentally start to repeat your full name. So if I was doing it, I would say, I am Deepak Chopra. I am John Doe. I am Mary Smith. I am followed by first name and last name. As you repeat your full name in the way I asked you to, first and last name, I am and first and last name, allow your awareness to be flooded by all the things that are happening in your life right now and all the things you have to do. Tomorrow, next week, everything happening in your personal life, your relationships, your social interactions, your work, your studies. Okay, now drop your last name, just repeat your first name. I'm Deepak, I'm Paul, I'm Jeffrey, I'm Susan. And allow your awareness to be flooded with memories from childhood, your house, your parents, your siblings, your school. Drop your first name and just repeat, I am, I am. As you repeat, I am, allow all these associations, these memories, these thoughts to slowly fade away. Just I am. And if you want now, you can replace the I am with the mantra, Shivoham, Shivoham, Shivoham. I am pure consciousness. Shivoham, 
means I am pure consciousness. Shivoham. And now, let go of the mantra and settle into awareness. Just be aware of being aware. Awareness, existence, being. That's who we are. Being. Being doesn't have a race, a nationality, a religion, or age. Those are experiences. So just stay there for a couple of minutes, aware of being aware. Okay, so now you can come back to this place in time by feeling your body and taking a minute or so to open your eyes. So here's the way to understand it. We first washed our breath and we asked questions and let go. Questions are important questions of existence. Who am I? What do I want? What's my purpose? What am I grateful for? You ask and you let go. And if you live those questions, life will move you into the answers, either through an epiphany or insight and intuition or situation, circumstance, <clears throat> synchronicity, coincidence, relationship. So just ask and let go. And then the next part of our meditation, we basically took the layers of assumed identity. Right? Deepak Chopra is an assumed identity. See, when you're born, you're just awareness. And then somebody comes along and says, this is your name, this is your religion, this is your gender, this is your race, this is your nationality. And before you know it, you're screwed. <laughs> you assume an identity that you had nothing to do with. And then you spend the left rest of your life defending and assumed identity. So as we slowly pay, peel away the layers of some assumed identity, Deepak Chopra, Deepak, I am, I am is not in time. I am Deepak and Chopra is in time for sure. Born on this day, death on this day. In between birth and death every moment. Okay, so we peel that. I am is not in time. That's why when Moses asked God, what's your name? God said, I am that I am. Or Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Because Abraham was in time, but I am in, not in time. And then we replace that with the mantra, Shivoham, and then we let even the mantra go, just being. So that is life. It's a, it's a movement between being, feeling, thinking, speaking, and doing in that sequence. Right? 
First we are human beings and then everything follows. Not human doings. So this is the meaning of the expression in, in Christian theology. What good does it do a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Which today we would say sacrificing the self for the selfie. <laughs> right? You are not your selfie. <laughs> you are the self. Because the selfie will be different tomorrow. So this is the continuum. Being, feeling. Highest intelligence being. Second highest is feeling. And in that is love is the highest. Okay, then reflecting. Not dogmatic thinking, not religious thinking, not scientific thinking, because truth cannot be a system of thought. Science is a system of thought created by human consciousness. So is theology, so is religion, so is philosophy. Truth cannot be a system of thought. Truth is that in which the system of thought was created. So feeling is next, and then reflection, and then speaking in a way that does not do any harm, speaking when it's necessary, speaking kindly, and then doing, which is called karma yoga. So it's called raj yoga, bhakti yoga, gyan yoga, and karma yoga. In that sequence, the word yoga means yoke. And Jesus in the New Testament says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light because I'm connected. Connected to whom? To the self. Being at this extreme, doing at this extreme. So I think Frank Sinatra said it best when he said, dooby dooby doo. <laughs> That's the dance of life in between everything else. Thank you for coming tonight. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>